Well, I want to welcome you to week two of Won't You Be My Neighbor? And what we're doing is really just trying to take a, a serious look at what Jesus said about loving our neighbors. And what we know is included in that is if we love anybody, then we're going to certainly share the greatest news that we know about Jesus. Now, the thing that we did learn from Jesus is that the word neighbor isn't just confined to a geographical dimension. It's not. Um, you may work with people, you go to school with people, you're on a team with people, but uh, they could all be referred to, Jesus said they're your neighbor, but what we are looking at here is the truth also that definitely includes the people who live next to us, right? The traditional definition of what we would think a neighbor would be. And so what we're realizing is if we're going to fulfill Jesus' commission to take the good news to the ends of the earth, then that requires that it starts at the end of our driveways. So if you weren't here last week, we, we started with the little handout that you'll find it again in your worship guide today because some of y'all weren't here last week and we're ready for you, all right? So in, in, in the guide that you got, there's a little piece of paper in there. It's got nine boxes on it. In the middle box represents your house. And the other boxes around, they, they represent um, those households that are closest to you. So eight households. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, some of you live on a gravel road. Some of you live in the middle of a neighborhood. Just draw a big enough circle that you're thinking about the eight households that are closest to you. And here's what the ABC represents. Actually, anybody else need one? They got some right there. They're ready for you. Anybody else need one just while we're, while we're doing? Here's what the A represents. The, the A represents their names. A represents their names. So you're just trying to write in their names. Do you know the, neighbor, do you know the names of your neighbors? Um, you guys just keep your hands up. They're rolling around, so they'll, they'll get you one. The B represents something that you know about them that you could only know from a conversation. In other words, not the color of their vehicle. You don't even have to talk to them to know the color of their vehicle, all right? But something you know about them because you had a conversation, and then C represents something about their heart. What do they care about the most? Maybe what are they burdened about the most? That's what you just heard. There's a story behind every door. And sometimes there are struggles that we don't even know about. So I, I'm not giving up on this. We're, we're going to continue to push this your direction. It's not supposed to be shame. It's just a good evaluation of where we're all starting. Where, where are we at? Some of you haven't lived where you live very long. Some of us have been there a long time. But something you could put on the fridge, something you could put somewhere in your sight, that every time you see it, a part of what you're doing is you're praying, God, I want to know their names. And I want to begin to learn some things about them, and I most want to learn about their heart because I want them to know your heart, God. So I'm encouraging you, don't be afraid to start filling it out. Don't be afraid to start praying that God would help you finish filling that out. It's going to take a while. How are we going to do that? Well, what we want to see is if we follow Jesus' model, all right? We're trying to follow Jesus' model. What does this look like? This doesn't have to be something we dread because sometimes what if God could use even something like this? Every good Jesus follower should have one of those. Seriously, every good Jesus follower, a, a grill that you can fire up and throw something on the grill and just be able to say to neighbors, hey, come on over. Let's just eat. Now, for some of you, a block party, you, you see like what the, the testimony was on the screen and you're like, block party, that would be awesome. How many streets can we block off? How many people can? Some of you are that way. You're like, let's get the whole neighborhood. Let's make it a big event. Your mind would already be spinning with, with what you want to do. And in probably next week, we're going to actually give you some information that would help you take such a step if you wanted to do a block party, some checklists, some things to think about, some things to work from. We're actually going to put it in your hands I think next week so that you have that but some of y'all are like block party I don't want to do a block party well I want to encourage you to just fire up your grill and invite one neighbor over fire up the grill and just invite one family over 
You don't have to do a block party. You, you, can, you can build relationships one at a time if you want to, but what we want to see is the truth in Scripture is that Jesus often used a party. He often used a party to get to know people, to have a prob- an opportunity for conversation that led him obviously toward the greatest thing that he could ever give them. What stands in the way of that? That's kind of what we're talking about in this series. What's in the way of that? Otherwise, we would have all done it already. Because most people do want to. And the thing we're talking about today, it's one of two, really, that we're going to just repeat in this series. It's fear. It's fear. Most of us, there's some aspect of fear as to why we don't take those steps. And today, I want to encourage you with something bigger. A nine-year-old girl stood on the beach in Fort Lauderdale and asked her mom an innocent question. Where's Cuba? Her mom pointed at the horizon and said, it's right over there. You can't see it, but you could almost swim there. Well, about 20 years later, that little girl It was actually 1978 that a lady by the name of Diana Nyad would attempt to do just that. She would attempt to swim from Cuba to Florida. And 78 miles later, 42 hours later, but unfortunately a strong westerly wind would just push her far off course and would stop her short of that goal. And her dream of becoming the first person to swim the Straits of Florida would lie dormant for more than three decades. But you see, that means that at the age of 60, at the age of 60, Diane and I had beginning to figure it's now or never. And so in her second attempt to swim from Cuba to Florida, she falls short because of an asthma attack. Her third attempt fails because of a Portuguese man of war that took her out. And her fourth attempt failed for multiple reasons, but among which was included nine jellyfish stings. But then on the morning of August the 31st, 2013, at 64 years of age, Diane and I would take one more shot. And 53 hours later, 110 miles later, she swims ashore in Key West. Her tongue terribly swollen from all that you go through in open water, she managed to slur these words. She says, I have three messages. One, never, ever give up. Two, you're never too old to chase your dream. And three, she said, this looks like a solitary sport, but it took a team. Now, the question is, how does somebody do that? I mean, you see somebody with such uh, incredible determination. How how does Diane and I do what nobody had been able to do before? How does she endure that kind of physical and mental punishment? How do you refuse to give up after all, even those failed attempts? Well, I'm not trying to oversimplify this because sometimes motivation really can be complex. But what I'm convinced of is that it had something to do was something that happened to her when she was just five years old. When she was five years old, her dad, Aristotle Nyad, called her into his den and he said, I've been waiting for this day a long time. It is your fifth birthday and this is the day that you are ready to understand the most significant thing that I will ever tell you. He opened up an unabridged dictionary and he pointed to her name, Nyad. And he said, tomorrow when you go to your little preschool, you can ask your friends how many of their names are in the dictionary. 
He said, it won't be many, but yours is. And he, as he pointed to the page, he said, I want you to listen to this. The first definition is from Greek mythology. The nymphs were the ones that swam in the lakes and the oceans and the rivers and the fountains to protect the waters for the gods. But he said, I want you to listen very carefully to me because now this is the most important part. The next definition, a girl or a woman champion swimmer. And he looks his little girl in the eye and he says, darling, that is your destiny. How did Diane and I do that? And the short answer in part, it was her father's voice. It became like a beacon to her. His, his narrative became her destiny so that when the sharks would circle and when the jellyfish would sting and when dehydration or hallucination began to set in, her father's voice that was spoken some 59 years earlier helped her keep going. Y'all know where I'm going with this? Aristotle Nyad opened a dictionary. We open a book called the Bible. And in the pages of this most precious book, you and I find our name. It is here that we find our identity. It is here that we find our destiny. And it is here that we find our Father's voice. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And so when we open this book and we hear our Heavenly Father speak, he calls us sons and he calls us daughters. He calls us children who belong. He calls us heirs of a king. He says we are loved and we are empowered and we are resourced and we are victorious and we are ambassadors. And do not be mistaken, we are not self-made. We are supernaturally made. And when you hear your heavenly father tell you who you are, when he speaks out your destiny, he becomes the what and the why and the how for everything that you do. And fear runs from him. There is a line of a song that we sing every once in a while around here. There is a place where fear has to face the God you know. I love that line. When you know who you are, when your heavenly father has spoken your name and he has spoken your destiny, then fear stands no chance in his presence. I want you to understand what I'm talking about today. In the last book of the Bible, which is called the book of Revelation, there are some remarkable pictures that are given to us. We are given a picture in the first chapter of just who Jesus is and all of his glory. We're, we're given seven letters to seven churches. We actually studied this a year or so ago. Uh, we are given a picture of what heaven looks like. But we're also given some pictures of what is to come. And tucked away in all of that, there are just some gems that are absolutely amazing. Today I want to show you one. Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. I want you to hear what we are given. It says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser, everybody say accuser, of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. There is an enemy spoken of in this passage. He has a variety of names throughout Scripture. A great dragon, an ancient serpent, a liar, a deceiver. In this text, he is called the accuser. The accuser of, of the brothers and sisters, the accuser of God's family it's talking about here. I want you to know you have a real enemy. He is very real. And his tactics have not changed. 
Because a part of how he goes after you is to remind you. It is to accuse you of all the things that you have ever done wrong, all the mistakes that you have ever made. And what he loves to do is accuse over and over and over again. So that when he gets finished with you and you have listened to his accusations and you realize the mistakes that you've made and who you really are, that you have no spiritual life left to you in order to to listen to what God has called you to be and do. Now I want us to understand, when we are Jesus followers, he lives within us by his spirit. And I realize that that sounds crazy. You're like, man, that's like, that's like, that would take a miracle. That's what it is. It is the miracle of the fact that his spirit can dwell with us, never to leave us. But when you're a Jesus follower and you do something that is in opposition to what Jesus says brings life to us, God's spirit brings something toward us called conviction. <laughs> and, and you feel it. You know it. You, you know it. Here's, here's where I'm stepping and I know this is the opposite of what Jesus says brings life. And so there is this feeling of, we're going to call it guilt. There is this feeling of wrong. I know that I'm, I'm doing wrong here. And why does God do that? Does he do that to make us miserable? No, he does that because think of it kind of like if you ignore a symptom, if you ignore pain within your physical body. Normally that doesn't get better. Normally it just gets worse, and God knows that. And so he brings conviction to, to bring our heart back to him. Conviction is the picture that he loves us. But what the enemy is doing here is something totally opposite. In the context of followers of Jesus, we have turned to Jesus in faith, admitting that we have messed up, admitting that we have sinned, knowing that we have done wrong. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we have put our trust in him. He forgives our sin. He even forgets our sin. It is this imagery that God will never bring that stuff back up to you. God is not the one who keeps bringing up the memories of your past failures and mistakes. That would be the accuser. And if over and over and over again he can remind us of where we have failed, he knows. He takes us out of the real mission to which we have been called. Romans tells us, chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The truth is that you are forgiven, and the truth is that he does put that behind us. So then how do we fight this battle? How do we fight this battle? Because we start talking about things like sharing the good news with our neighbors, and we go, well, who am I? Do you know what I've done? Like, no, but he does. The very one who's calling you to the mission, he does. Well, how do you fight that when there's an accuser who's saying, here's what you've done wrong and here's what you don't deserve? Who are you to tell somebody? I want you to see where this goes. Verse, verse 11. They triumphed over him. That would be the accuser. By the blood of the lamb... And by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, here's the first part that I want you to see. How did they triumph over him? They triumph over him by the blood of the Lamb. Now, if if you're kind of new to church, it's like, well, that, that's a weird phrase, right? You really don't, we don't use the blood of the lamb really anywhere else in any kind of conversation in, in, in the world. What, what is that about? Well, let me read how Peter says the same thing in the Bible, and then I, I want to kind of unpack this in just a few minutes. Here's what, here's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter, eight, or chapter 1. Here's what he says, verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, Now, come on, that's like at the top of most of our list. We go, what's most valuable? What is worth most? Silver, gold, right? That's the kind of stuff that we go, hey, what could I have? That's what I want. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold. 
that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Multiple times in scripture, we are called to realize the blood of the lamb, right? Peter uses the same language. What is that? What is that? Well, when you start to read the Bible, if you start to read the New Testament, right, which is the second part of your Bible, it's the moment when Jesus shows up on the scene and we're being given the story. There's a guy named John who sees Jesus and he declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's all through there. What's this language? Well, God has always said from the moment that that man sins, from the moment that we rebel against God, the wages of our sin, the result of our sin, the consequences of our sin, it's death. It's death. And not just a physical death, but it is a death spiritually, a separation from God. The wages of our sin, the result of our sin, it is death. And God gave the picture from the very beginning that there was a price that had to be paid for our wrong. A price that had to be paid for our sin. And so what God established was this imagery, this, this symbol, a picture where, where sacrifices would have to be made. There were, there were animals that would be sacrificed like a lamb. And, and regularly there were certain times that, that a lamb would be sacrificed. And I know it sounds gross and it sounds horrible. Well, you should, if we could actually see what sin really does, you would realize how horrible that it really is. But, but a lamb that would be sacrificed and that blood would be shed and it was this imagery that that there is a price for our sin. When Jesus comes and John declares him to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, it is like this summary statement of what we are reading throughout the Gospels that Jesus now steps onto the scene, able to actually do what all of those lambs who had been sacrificed before, they could not actually do. They could not cover our sin. The, the blood of an animal couldn't forgive our sin, but it pointed toward something that was going to happen. Well, the something that was going to happen was Jesus who was going to step onto the scene. He would take our place of punishment, dying on a cross where his blood would be shed. But he takes my sin, he takes your sin, he dies for us, he rises from the dead. And when we put our trust in him, He will forgive and he will forget. He calls us sons and daughters. He makes us his children and we belong to him forever. Jesus fulfills what all of that pointed toward and he establishes what's called a new covenant, a new promise, a new connection between us and God. We don't earn it. It comes by grace through faith in Jesus who shed his blood for us. Now, here's what I need you to understand. When you think about the word covenant, in the day in which we're talking, um, they wouldn't use the word necessarily the language of make a covenant. They would use the language cut a covenant. When we think about a contract or a covenant, we think about paper and ink, somebody signing something. That's not how they would do it. In ancient cultures, uh, when people are, are making a covenant, they would be called cutting a covenant. And what would happen is they would exchange some things, and then they would actually have a meal after they made the exchange. So they exchanged something, and then they would have a meal. So it might be an exchanging of robes. That was pretty common. A robe. I would take off my robe, give it to you. You take off your robe, give it to me. An exchanging of robes. An exchanging of sandals, maybe. Um, It might be a belt. It might be a ring. It might be a weapon, right? It it might be uh, names even. But that covenant was not signed, sealed, and delivered until there was a cut. And I know this sounds weird, but it's what they would do. Literally, they they would make a, a small cut at times in their palm. 
and the blood would trickle from that small cut, and then when they grasped hands, it was as though there was an exchange of blood. You say, that is totally gross. I understand, but I'm just telling you what they did. And the covenant was cut. And the scar on the hand was a reminder of the evidence that this covenant is sealed in blood. I often wonder when I read the story after the resurrection where one of Jesus' disciples who had a really hard time believing that he had risen from the dead, the news came to him, Jesus is risen, and and Thomas is going, I just don't believe. And there's this encounter that happens where Jesus does something very specific for Thomas. He, He does what? He reaches out his hand, and he says, Thomas, I want you to touch right here. Now, I'm not trying to overread it. I just am being honest with you. Sometimes I wonder, sometimes I wonder if Jesus is not only providing the physical evidence to say to Thomas here, here's where the nails were driven in my hand, but is it not also a picture of revealing the reminder, the evidence, this covenant is sealed in blood and the scar is the evidence done. The blood of Jesus is what cancels the curse of sin. The blood of Jesus is what breaks the chains of sin that hold us. It's what guarantees the promise of God. It signs, seals, and delivers the covenant with us. The blood of Jesus is our redemption. It is our forgiveness, our confidence, our deliverance, our healing. And my point is, when I read Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, It kind of feels like to me that's where the verse should end. Because where do you go from there? How how are we going to get bigger than, than the blood of Jesus and what we're celebrating that he has done, the one who overcomes our enemy? It feels like there should be a period right there. Because where are we going to go from there? But it is interesting when you read Revelation chapter 12 verse 11, it is not a period, it is a conjunction. There is an and that shows up in the picture. Look at it again. They triumph over him by the blood of the lamb. Period. No, and. And by the word of their testimony. Hmm. Doesn't it feel like like one of these things is not like the other? Right? It feels like that. The blood of Jesus and the word of our testimony, but maybe it's because, maybe it's because we have not really heard the voice of our Father who speaks regarding the significance of the story that he is writing in us that actually declares his greatness. Because it's not an either or. How do you overcome the accuser? It doesn't say the blood of the lamb or the word of a testimony. It's, it's a both and. It's a both and. And so I want to begin, I want you to see, because some of you right now are thinking, look, I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem taking out the grill, and I don't have a problem throwing something on the grill. I, I don't have a problem inviting my neighbor over. But who in the world am I to talk to them about Jesus? Like, who am I to talk to them about anything regarding God? Who am I to talk to them about spiritual things? Well, your heavenly Father says, you are exactly who he's called to do so. It is your destiny. It is your identity. This is what he has called us to. I want you to notice that the word testimony cannot be spelled without the word test. It seems kind of ironic that on the day of graduation, we got the word test going on because, I mean, who in the world likes those? Mm -mm. Most people don't. Here's the way James says it, though, in James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let, the perse- let perseverance finish uh, its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So here's the here's way I want you to, to, to start to think through this. A part of your testimony involves some difficult stuff, perhaps, in your life. 
like stuff that's painful, stuff that hurts. It's the stuff that a lot of us would love to just forget and never talk about again. But it's a part of the supernatural of what it means to know Jesus where even the hurt and the pain in our life don't have to end in a hopelessness, do not have to end in something that we have to hide forever, try to cover it up. But what he does in us in bringing healing, what he does in us in knowing that he is more than enough in every circumstance, and I'm not saying that it happens in the 24 hours. I'm not saying that it happens in a month or sometimes even a year, but I'm saying there is healing that happens even out of our hurt, out of our pain, that eventually even that part of our life becomes a story of how great God is. That's a part of your testimony. You can't, you can't spell testimony without test. But then there's also a part of your testimony that's also just declaring God's favor and his blessing on your life at times when you look back and you go, oh my word, I did absolutely nothing to deserve that and God just like poured the wheelbarrow out and blessed you like crazy. See, I need to hear, I need to hear your story. And you, you need to hear my stories. And I'm promising you that your neighbors need to hear your stories. When, I, when you hear stories of struggle, the result is, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one who struggles with pride or greed or anger or lust. I'm not, I'm not the only one that sometimes gets depressed. I, I'm, I'm not the only one. Sometimes we have a way of making this look like a solitary sport. But God's design is that it takes a team. It takes a team. And your story is a part of being that team. You, you, you flip the coin, not only is it sharing your struggles, but it's also sharing the miracles. It, it, it's also sharing those moments that God delivers and God heals, because what does that do? That encourages us to keep on trusting and to keep on believing. It, it, it encourages me to know that certainly I'm reminded that God can, and if this is, if this is the best route for his, his glory to be seen, then he's going to do that. But if not, he's, he's going to be enough. So here's my challenge to you this week. This is your homework. I want you to start writing your story. I want you to start writing down your story. Like, write it down, type it in, but start writing your story. Your testimony. And I want you to think about it in two ways. And our students who go on mission trip, they get this because we kind of gotten to where we talk about our testimony, our story in two ways. When most people here share your testimony, like if you grew up in church and you know church lingo and somebody says share your testimony, what most people think is I'm going to share the story of how I came to put my trust in Jesus. Like the day that I prayed to ask him into my life, that, that's your testimony. And it is. That's a part of your testimony. And I want to encourage you this week to write that down. Maybe it's been a long time since you've actually just took the time to slow down enough to write it. If you've got to write it, you actually have to slow down enough to do it. Some of y'all don't know how to write anymore, so it's okay to type, all right? It's okay to type. Every once in a while, I get in a setting now where, I'm, where I, like, there is no option, and you have to like, take some notes of something. I'm like, I don't know how to write anymore, right? Because your hand gets tired after about three minutes of trying to write. So I don't care if you type it or you write it, but take the time to put it down of when you met him when you met him. But there's more than that to your story. And so I want to invite you to think about writing about some of those times in your life that were great struggles. But you learned something about who God is in the middle of those. You saw him do something in your life in the middle of those. Some of you, he, he literally may have saved your life. For some of you, he he brought about some miracles. For others, he didn't bring the miracles, but he showed you something about how he loves you that you wouldn't trade for anything else in this world. Write it down. Like, write it down. It's a part of your story. And the challenge that I'm going to have for you ongoing is that really, at least, like, I mean, is it, does this freak you out to go, like, every week we should have a new story? 
Like, are, are you living where I'm living in the world and all the stuff that we deal with and the stuff that we need to see God work in our lives and help us through and we're asking for answers and we're looking for direct, like, <clears throat> is it too crazy that every week we literally write the latest story? Because what I want to help us understand is that when you share your story, I'm not talking about having a block party and then sitting everybody down and deliver a sermon. I mean, you can if you want to. Let me know how that goes, right? But you invite the neighborhood over, sit them down, and give them a sermon. It's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about inviting people and entering lives of people and starting to eat together and talk together and get to know one another. And when you get to know one another, you will start to hear the stuff going on in people's lives. And when you hear the stuff going on in people's lives, you are armed and ready with story after story after story. Sometimes it's where God delivered. Sometimes it might be right where they are, where there's not an answer yet, and they feel like God's not answering, and you're able to speak into those stories. And the more you speak those stories of who Jesus is, eventually it really will lead to the opportunity where you have to say, this is how I met him, and this is how you can too. And some of us are going to be surprised because some of that might happen really quick. Like you, you may be, some of that could happen really quick. Conversations start to happen. You get to know somebody in the neighborhood. But for some of us, we're going to have, and we'll talk about this as we go forward. It may take a while for some. This is not just checking some boxes. This is loving some people. And it may take a while. Some things I want you to remember Maybe it'll help to take the fear off a little bit. Everyone that you meet is made in the image of God, which means God says they are worth you sharing your story with. They are worth you pushing through your fear because God made them in his image. Now, I understand they may be just as, they're as broken as the rest of us, and but there is something in them that God goes, I made them in my image. I've, I, they are valuable to me. Everyone you also meet, is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. Everybody you meet is fighting a battle that you don't know. I think it was Longfellow who said that if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's sorrow, life, and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. Hurt people hurt people. But what we're supposed to do as Jesus followers is to slow down long enough to realize maybe we're supposed to be the ones who are finding out why people hurt. Why do they hurt? And when I do that, it changes my focus that instead of focusing on how they're hurting me, I'm starting to focus on why do they hurt. And then third, everyone you meet knows something that you don't and you need to learn from them. Now, there's a reason I'm putting this in here. And the reason is because when we kind of talk about this stuff and, and, and this week you're going to start writing down your story and, and, and uh, you're loading up. You're, you're, you're loading up. I mean, you got story after story, and, and, and it's like you're going to light up the grill and, and invite people over, and you're ready. You're, you're ready, right? It's like if somebody halfway opens their mouth, I'm, you're just ready to unload your story. But I'm reminding you that it may start with you listening. It may start with you listening. It was Francis Schaeffer who was one asked what he would do if he had an hour to share the gospel. He said, I would try to listen for 55 minutes, and then I would give them the best I could in five. Now, I'm not saying that's the best. Jesus didn't say that, so I don't know if that's the best route, but his point is right. Listening before we speak. We got to do a little less talking and a little more listening. Let me tell you a secret. People love to talk about themselves. So really, if you'll just ask them about themselves, lots of times they will take the conversation. And once they take the conversation and you listen, you will start to hear the stuff that, that, that rips at their heart. You will, you will start to hear the stuff that, that weighs on them. And you're praying for the right opportunity to begin to share either a little bit of your story or sometimes he's gonna let you unpack the whole thing. And you tell them how great Jesus is.
So whether it's a block party or whether it's one family, your Heavenly Father has spoken. This is who you are, and this is your destiny. This is what he's called you to. The reason we want to throw parties in our yard is because we really exist to start parties in heaven. You know that? The reason we want to throw parties in our yard and our driveway is because we really exist to throw parties in heaven. Let me tell you this real quick, and then I'm going to wrap. There's a remarkable chapter in the Gospel of Luke. It's the 15th chapter where Jesus tells these stories about lost stuff. He talks about lost sheep and a lost coin. And, and each time somebody searches for that which is lost, and when they find that which is lost, guess what they do? Throw a party. They throw a party. They celebrate. They, sometimes they invite people over. It's like, hey, this, this, this one lost sheep out of the hundreds, like it's only one out of a hundred. It's like, I know, but we're going we're gonna to party because that which is lost has been found. And, and a coin, one out of ten coins, it sounds like, well, you still had nine. I know, but, but, but you celebrate. And then Jesus makes this most remarkable statement where he says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That means one person who turns from their selfishness, from their sin, turns to Jesus in faith, the Bible says that heaven throws a party. That was Jesus. That's what he was saying. Just like they found one sheep, had a party. Just like they found one coin, had a party. He said every time one person turns to Jesus, party goes on in heaven. And so I want you to realize in the context of what we're talking about today, you, you, are, you are on the party having committee. That's the deal. You get to be a part of setting off parties in heaven, and sometimes God uses a barbecue grill, right? He can use any kind of opportunity when you connect to people's lives for the purpose of sharing the good news. There's a third story that Jesus tells in that chapter. It's the chapter of a son who really disowns his father by asking for his inheritance. So in that day, it basically would have meant, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your stuff. And the son leaves. But the son quickly loses all of the inheritance. He ends up in a pig pen, which in Jewish language is like the worst possible. It's the most unclean thing you could ever think of. But the boy comes to his senses, decides to go home, and begs his father for forgiveness. And Jesus said that as the son was walking home, his father sees him. Says he actually sees him a long way down the road, which means father was what? He's watching. And he runs to his son and he embraces his son and he kisses his son. And then I love what happens next. Luke chapter 15, verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe. Bring a robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to party. Did you catch what might be going on here? A robe. A ring. Sandals. I, I, I wonder if it is some picture, some imagery of a father who is reestablishing a covenant. My son that was gone He's back. Now, if it were most of us, most of us would at least take five minutes to give that boy a lecture before we put any robe on his back. But this father doesn't. The heart of this father throws a party. And I think it's because this represents a heavenly father who knows when repentance really happens. When storms 
push you. And sharks circle you. And jellyfish sting you. Remember who you are. Remember whose you are. And hear your father's voice. Go and tell. That is your mission. That is your destiny. I challenge you to throw some earthly parties and do it well because you actually exist to start some parties in heaven. We'll pick it up right here next week. We're going to end with a song today um, after I pray. And honestly, uh, we've kind of made the decision that each week when we come together and we talk about this stuff, the song that we sing at the end, for, for the most part, um, is, is not one that's here. It's one that's here. And the reason is because I, I, I want you to realize that what, what we're calling each other to here, which is really what our Heavenly Father is calling us to, is not, it is, this is not something we got to dread. This really is what we're made for. This really is what he's empowered us for. And so we really want to send you out each week realizing the truth of who you are in him. But before we sing it, I, I do want us to start here. And today, I'm going to invite you to join me here if you can. Um, you don't have to. If you can't get on your knees, please don't worry about that. And please don't feel like you have to. If you don't want to go to your knees, you don't have to do that. N nobody's going to be more holy in the next five minutes because they're on their knees versus sitting on their bottom. All right? Nobody's more holy. But when we go to our knees, what does it represent? We depend. God, we depend on you completely. And there is a humility in us that goes, if, if we got the best grills in the world and we serve the best food in the world and we throw the best parties in the world, all that comes up empty unless our God draws people's hearts to himself and opens their eyes to see the truth of his goodness. So, not trying to get crazy. Nobody worry about it. But if you want to, I'm inviting us to do a little something different this morning. And before we sing this song, we're going to go to our knees and we're going to spend a few minutes praying for this list. I'm going to give you a few seconds, a few minutes just to pray for the people that might be live near you, live on that list, whatever God's calling you to. Some of y'all, some of y'all have already been honest with me today and you're like, God was telling me to do something, some stuff this week and I fought him, fought him, fought him, fought him. Right? And it involved neighbor. I hear you. I don't I don't I hear you. I think there's going to be a lot of those battles. But God help us. God help us. I invite you. Let's pray. I invite you to just take a few moments and just pray for some of those folks who may already be on that list or maybe some folks who aren't on the list yet because you don't know who they are, but you know where they are. And just asking God to give you opportunity to connect. God, I thank you that um, long before we learn names and no hearts, you do. And we're asking you to help us, God, in regards specifically today to just some of those folks who live near us that, um, I don't know, there's just a part of me, God, that just does not want to even think about um, all that you've blessed my life with and then to get to heaven one day and, and to face the fact that I, that I didn't 
that I didn't tell the people who were actually closest to me. So God, I'm asking you to help us to have some courage and some faith to take some next steps even this week. We look for opportunities to have conversations. God, opportunities to think about, God, um, uh, maybe having dinner. God, lighting up the grill, inviting some folks over. God, just asking you to give us, give us faith and give us courage. God, there's nothing in the world. Nothing in the world that would ever be a greater legacy, a greater destiny than to be a part of you bringing people to you. God, I'm asking you to give us eyes that can see today. May our fear stand in front of you that it has to run. God, may nothing, may we allow nothing to get in the way of who you've called us to be. God, thanks for what you've taught us today. Thank you for what you're going to show us this week. God, help us to see as you are writing our story. It's in the great name of Jesus that we pray. All right, let's stand. We're going to celebrate a little bit. Here's the truth. I know this scares us a little bit, but one of these days we're going to see it clear in heaven. What else is God going to offer that's bigger than this? You know it? What else is God going to offer us in terms of a legacy, in terms of a destiny, than to get to be a part of seeing people come to him? And so as we sing this song together, I want you to think about what it would be like if you were just overjoyed and thankful because like the greatest dream job in the world suddenly got given to you. Well, man, if we could just see what this mission is, we would realize we would shout louder than anything else we would ever be offered. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to us today. Let's celebrate.